0: Praise God, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We just did a message, a couple messages where we looked, talked about chapter 10, verse 13, uh, once just recently and then one a while back, uh, but not in the context in which we're going to emphasize uh, today because we're not going to be talking about temptation per se. Uh, last time we got together, we talked about having victory over temptation. This time I want to deal with the, just the real dynamic that we are responsible as believers and that the world is responsible. And in chapter 10, without rehearsing all the context which we've looked into uh, last week and the other time we were in First Corinthians chapter 10, heading up to verse 13, I'll just mention a bit of it, but I want to read verse 13 first. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man common. We've talked about that. And God is faithful. Thank him for his faithfulness. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Thank God for that. But with the temptation will also provide what? Will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. That is a glorious promise. Amen. That he's faithful to provide a way of escape that we might endure temptation. Uh, the fact that there is temptation in this world shows you that God is not done You know We're in a state of probation right now. We're not in the new heaven and the new earth yet, contrary to some of the full preterists who believe we are. uh, God hasn't wiped away all of our tears yet. We haven't faced the great white throne judgment yet. We haven't faced the Bema Seat judgment, which is what believers will face, and the great white throne judgment will be strictly for non-believers to be judged. Uh, We are in a place and state right now to where we're still able to make choices that pertain to eternity and I want to talk about that because verse 13 is very, very clear that we do have uh, libertarian free will. We have options between life and death, between choosing God and choosing Satan. Jesus said, you know, you can't choose both. You can't serve both God and mammon. Either you'll love one, the one and hate the other, you hate the one and love the other. He constantly put choices before his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And told them to take up their crosses and deny themselves and to follow him. And we have to make choices. He talked about two different roads, a broad road that leads to destruction that many people are on, and the narrow road that leads to life, which he contrasted with few being on that road. He told us over and over again to cho- choose him, to follow him, to do his will. And I want to talk about 1st Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 because today we're in a period of time where human responsibility is being denied. It's being denied in academia, uh, sometimes philosophically. Uh, It's being denied by those who are, you know, many leading psychotherapists and psychologists uh, that were just basically, you know, or say even Darwinists and evolutionists like Richard Dawkins who basically said we're at the mercy of our genes and there's not any real choice. And many materialists are determinists. They don't believe that Human beings are really responsible for the choices that they make. We also have a group in theological circles that states that we don't really have a genuine choice, that everything's predetermined. The very evil thoughts that wicked serial killers have. Uh, The baby rapist has no choice but to do what God's predestined him to do. So you have it in theological circles. You have it in academic circles. You have it in the popular realm of academia to deny free will, to deny that humans are responsible before God. However, however I must say this, uh, at least the Darwinists, uh, for instance, and the psychologists who deny free will are somewhat consistent with their belief that there's no genuine free will. And they'll you know go down on paper and say people aren't, shouldn't really be held accountable for something they couldn't choose to do. But they want them to be held accountable after all, especially if it's their stereo or their house that was broken into. However, in theology, people want to have it both ways. They want to say, well, ultimately, humans don't make choices of their own strict free will, but they're predetermined choices, but they still have to be held accountable for choosing what they could not help but choose. Although they won't word it that way. They'll use terms, fancy theological terms like compatibilism to get around uh, the barrier of trying to deal with the idea that God is not the author of sin if you make him basically the author of sin by saying he's predetermined every evil act and thought that would ever take place. So there is among Reformed teachers, uh, R.C. Sproul and many others, who have taught strongly that Everything you basic, that basically happens has been predetermined before we existed, including every evil thought, ev- every evil act. I have uh, John Calvin's book on predestination that he wrote, and I can't tell you how much I underlined it because of how many things he said. He even talks about the evil thoughts that people have are predetermined. They, you know, they're placed there before they've existed. And how do you get around verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and hold that view? You really can't. Because, again, let's read it in a little bit more of the context. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That purports that you have a responsibility to take heed when you think you stand so you don't fall. As though you do indeed have something to do with whether you stand or fall or not. Then in verse 13, no temptation is you but such is common to man, meaning everybody has this experience of dealing with temptation. And God is faithful who will not allow you, the believers, to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. Does that not obviously and clearly state that when you are tempted, that God provides the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it? I'm basically quoting the scripture again, you know? And then in verse 14, therefore, on the basis of this reality that God's faithful not to tempt you beyond what you're able, but to provide the way of escape so you can endure it, therefore, because of that reality, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In other words, choose to take the way of escape. Amen. So let none of us ever fall under the delusion that somehow we could say, ah, I sinned, but you know. God made me do it based on his decree. I can show you in Jeremiah chapter 7 where they're burning their children to Baal in the fire and killing them. And God says, this never came into my mind. It was never something that he planned. And then in chapter 19 of Jeremiah, again it says, they're burning their children in the fire as sacrifice to Baal. You know, and I need, he says, I neither... Uh, commanded it or decreed it. The ESV says, I didn't even decree it because Calvinism claims that everything's just basically decreed. He said, I didn't decree it. And I'm quoting the ESV, which is a Calvinistic translation, by the way. So, one translation I found that says decreed right there. I thought, am glad they put the word decreed there. He said, I didn't decree it. And he says, it never came into my mind. That's not my heart. That was your choice, not mine. Which shows you that there is a degree. Freedom that humans have and that they're responsible for. Certainly, there's things we can't choose. We can't jump to the moon, you know, with our, on our own strength, right? There's a lot of things we can't choose, but there's definitely a choice to be made between whether we sin or we don't sin. Now, we don't want to deny these scriptures, and we all need to make sure as believers that we recognize that we're responsible and we stand before God. The non believer is responsible in Romans chapter 1 says, in light of the creation and all things that he made, and that his divine power and, and all his, his, his attributes are seen by the things that he's made, that those who reject him will be without excuse, it says. What better excuse would you possibly have if you were predetermined not to believe before the world existed and you could possibly believe? That would be the best excuse you could possibly come up with if it was true, but it's not true. We're held responsible. I believe a problem, one of the major problems in the evangelical church today is many people feel because they've fallen under the spell of the popular world system, or they've fallen under the spell of determinism, theological fatalism, theological determinism, that we're somehow not responsible for our sin, and that nothing could be further from the truth. But I thought, I was gonna, I'm going to take you through some scriptures, which are some of my favorite scriptures that show the responsibility that we have before God. And that really enjoin upon us the reality that we are to make the, the, the determination in our hearts to choose life. And it's a glorious thing to choose life. And I thank God that we have freedom. It's a dangerous thing, yes, because you could choose the wrong path. But I'd rather have freedom to choose the right and wrong path than not have the freedom and be damned forever because. I didn't have the choice to choose God and then be blamed for not choosing him when I never had the choice in the first place. Now, there are those who will say, well, yeah, he's predetermined every little thing that takes place. They'll say that. The, the cal- true you know, Calvinistic theologians, classic Calvinism says, every, everything is predetermined by God. If you could make a choice that wasn't predetermined by God before you existed... Then it's like, and, it, and God didn't predetermine it, then they would say, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense because God can't foreknow everything. He can't foreknow free choices, therefore he has to predetermine everything to control everything. To me, that's a weak view of God. God is more sovereign, more powerful than that. He's so powerful, he can grant us freedom to reject his word and still win in the end and still be glorified in the end and still take the evil choices that people make to bring forth his gospel and show forth his great love with wicked people and provide salvation for each and every person through Christ's death and his resurrection. And in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and he's sovereign. That's a powerful God. And that's the God we have in scripture. Now he knows what people will choose. But he still made us in his image. And what I'm proposing to you is what we often call in theology an influence and response model. This is what the scriptures show. God seeks to influence us. God definitely decrees a lot of things, like creating the heavens and the earth, amen, that no one's going to stop. So when he decrees something and say this is going to take place and there's no if ands, there's no conditions upon it, it's going to take place. But he's also decreed that people have a choice to choose life or not. That's by his decree too. He decreed that he that believes, right, will be saved. He that rejects him and doesn't believe will be damned. That's by his decree. So to not d- believe or to believe does not somehow overthrow his sovereignty. It's a result of his sovereignty. Now, when we look at this, uh, this, this idea, this influence and response model, which is scriptural, it's different than the cause and effect model, The strong determinism found in a lot of Reformed theology, a lot of Calvinism, is that God causes everything that takes place, and there's no choice outside of it. Now, how does this keep God from being the author of sin? Marissa, did you raise your hand? No, she was just stretching her shirt out there. Uh, You guys, think about it. When you have a situation like this, where you have, we are made in his image, God wanted beings that would relate to him, not automatons, not robots, those who can choose to love him or not love him. That's so scriptural, and we have to get our brains around this to understand it. Now, I want to give you one of the popular arguments used by my Calvinistic brethren, brothers and sisters, one brother that I I love. He's a great brother in the Lord, He's Calvinist. Uh, He loves to use Lazarus as an example of someone who doesn't have a choice in his salvation. And uh, he's a great bro. But uh, uh, if he still holds the view he held before, he would claim that, well, Lazarus didn't have a choice when he was resurrected. And Jesus said, come forth. And he came forth. But he could only come forth after he was what? Resurrected. And then he could obey Jesus' words, come forth. And that's an analogy or illustration of being born again. You really can't put faith in Christ and choose life until you're first born again. And that's the teaching. You must be born again first. Now, many Calvinists in the past, like Shed and others, taught that you could be born again as a baby, you know? And later on in life, sometime you would come to faith. But as evangelical Christians... Most believers that don't get schooled in Calvinism but just read their Bibles constantly read believe and you shall be what? Saved. Belief comes before salvation. The Bible talks about faith before salvation over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Talks about repentance unto life. Not life unto repentance. But they use, because they can't find a clear scripture that teaches you must be born again before you believe, which teaches the opposite of what the Bible teaches, which is believe and you'll be born again, amen. They teach that regeneration precedes faith. Because after all, Lazarus couldn't hear. And then as a dead person, therefore he had to be resurrected first. And they take, an, they take Jesus rising, raising someone from the dead, right? And they make that analogous to salvation, so the physical resurrection of Lazarus becomes an illustration of our spiritual resurrection or being born again, that we can only hear God's word. Are you following me? That you can only hear God's word if you're born again first. You can't respond to him unless you're first born again as a teaching. It's very popular. And Calvinists are my brothers. And Calvinists will constantly give messages that disagree with our position, the position of the Christian church for the first f- few centuries of church history. Easy. Now, let me, let's go to uh, John chapter 11, verse 43. John chapter 11, verse 43. And here, you know, Jesus is deemed late to Lazarus' funeral. If he'd been there on time before, the, before Lazarus died, Mary and Martha are disheartened because he would have never died and they feel he's late and how can you let this happen? Well, Jesus is late on purpose. He has a plan. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we read in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the idea is, now, is this talking about salvation, by the way? No, it's talking about the resurrection of, of Lazarus who died. And I have no problem using analogies. And I do believe there is some parallel between dead and uh, a dead corpse and those who are spiritually dead to a degree. But you don't want to press the analogy beyond the scripture. Amen. fact you'll often hear me talk about zombies you know zombies are a great picture they're the walking dead that's more of a that's a better picture of of what's going on in the world right Uh, not a perfect analogy either by any stretch of the imagination so my brother great brother as I said I love his heart for loss and stuff Uh, when he street witnesses he'll have a dead man laid out in front of him you know and then he'll use that dead man as an example of what people are unless God makes them born again first and you have to be born again before you can believe. I have like a, a dummy out there, you know? And, uh, but it, and it would be a good analogy if you use it biblically, but it gets pressed too far. And this is an in-house family debate, but it's something we need to talk about. So one Calvinist writes this, speaking of this analogy, using this idea of Lazarus as a dead corpse, and he can only hear after he's resurrected, and that's the same with us. We have to be born again because we're not really free to choose life he has to choose which ones he wants to have bestow salvation upon and then give them faith and then they can put their trust in the Lord and finally then be forgiven after they've been born again first. The Bible doesn't teach, though, that regeneration precedes faith. It always teaches everywhere where it's dealt with, any order, and there's an order often, you always see repentance or faith prior to regeneration because we must be forgiven. Born, we must be f- forgiven of our sins through faith in Christ before he comes to live in our hearts. Because we need to be justified before he'll come in to live in us. We we need to consent and say, yes, I trust the blood of Christ. Or I put my faith in you, Lord. and, And then we can be born again after we're forgiven. But they have the opposite. They have the being born again. Then the forgiveness comes later. So here, one Calvinist writes this. People with dead spirits, and I just found these off the internet recently, just looking at what, knowing I'd find it all over the place. People with dead spirits cannot hear or perceive the word of God. So when you're preaching to somebody to get saved and you're telling them about Jesus, they can't can't hear or perceive the word of God. It is foolishness to them. You can hear it because, being born again people, you can hear it because you are born again from above. Dead people cannot hear or perceive. Another totally different Calvinist, another website. I have said that a dead person cannot hear God's voice. You seem to say that they can or else maybe you don't think... uh, Man, before becoming a Christian, is really spiritually dead. In other words, if you don't agree with my analogy, you don't agree that he's spiritually dead. And, in fact, uh, do hear God's voice. You seem to say that man can exercise faith in Jesus while still dead. And then, if he does, God causes him to be born again. Meaning, after he hears and has faith. Which is what most people, Christians, do believe, by the way. And that's the biblical way, as we go through Scripture, but not to just quote random Calvinists. Here's a quotation from R.C. Sproul in his book, What is Reformed Theology, page 186. He makes certain statements on on this page. He says, obviously, in the case of physical death, a corpse cannot respond or cooperate. We agree with that with regard to physical death, right? We respond in a manner similar to that of Lazarus when, after being loosened or loosed, he stepped out of the tomb. In like manner, we step out of our tombs of spiritual death. We also respond when we hear the call of Christ. Lazarus was dead, not critically ill. or at the point of dying. He was already a corpse and was decomposing. The stench from his rotting body was repugnant to his sister Martha. And it's true. Lazarus was on, dead for four days. You know, beyond three days, your body starts to stink. It's decomposing. The the gases from the decomposition are just let off an awful stench. And and, uh, they're like really concerned and and worried. And like, well, it's over, you know. Where's Jesus? And he resurrects him. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, he's basically saying that's the same thing with us. We're spiritually dead. And until we're born again, we can't really put our trust in Jesus leading Calvinist Lorraine Bettner I have one of his books this book called the reformed Doctrine of predestination which is the book I have by him page 66 he says this a corpse cannot act in any way whatever and that man would be reckoned to have taken leave of his senses who asserted that it could if a man is dead spiritually therefore meaning based on the analogy not based on the scripture if a man is dead spiritually, therefore, it is surely equally, notice the word equally, as evident that he is unable to perform any spiritual actions. See, see the parallel there? If a physical person can't do anything physically, if you're dead spiritually, you can't do anything spiritually. Now, does the Bible make an equal one-to-one correspondence? Do you know of any scripture that says, just as people are physically dead in the same way they are spiritually dead, in the exact same way equally? Do you know of any Bible verse that says that? No, this is just a, an analogy that he's pressing, and he's saying, since the physical body is like this, it must be true of the spiritual person. Scriptures do not teach this though. Now, now let's just start at the beginning before we start addressing this analogy. Let's just see, do people, do dead people respond? Genesis chapter 3. By the way, where Adam and Eve. Alive before they committed sin, spiritually? Come on. Yes, obviously. It's not a trick question. They were. What happened when they They sinned? Amen, Jim. They died spiritually. Well, could they no longer hear God's voice? Go to Genesis chapter 3. This is after they sinned. And they were spiritually dead. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now does Adam say, what is that weird sound? It sounds like a foreign language. I don't understand it because I'm spiritually dead. No, we read in verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. They're spiritually dead. Oh, guess what? Right from the get-go, spiritually dead people do hear God's voice. And by the way, he tells them, because they've sewn together uh, fig leaves, right, to hide themselves under their own covering, their own righteousness, their own righteous acts, thinking they could take care of their sinfulness that way, but they were still ashamed, they were still hiding, they were still in fear. But they truly hear God's voice. And then he tells them he... He kills an animal, which is a prefiguration, a foreshadowing of the death of Christ who will die for their sins. And He tells them to put on these animal skins. Do they say, we're dead spiritually. We can't hear you because we're like corpses. No, they obey his word. They act in faith. They put on these animal skins, which I believe that was an act of faith and that they were saved by grace through faith at that point, okay? So, I mean, it gets... Go to Genesis chapter 4. Is Cain alive or dead spiritually? Come on. Cain was of the evil one, right? He's dead spiritually. You know Cain's story. It says in 1 John, he was the evil one. He slew his brother. But guess what? They both are called to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And Cain rebelled against what the Lord said. We know that because he's held responsible. We know that because the Lord points out that he didn't do what's right. We know that because Abel is in Hebrews chapter 11 and it says in faith he offered up. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how he could have faith in what the Lord wanted because the Lord expressed it. Cain is held responsible. Cain is dead in his sins, yet he's held responsible for his rebellion and he's upset, he's depressed. And when you're in rebellion to God, you will inevitably eventually become a depressed person. That doesn't mean everybody that's depressed is in rebellion to God, that would be a false equation again. But if you're in rebellion to God, eventually you will be depressed. That's what the scriptures teach. And that's what happened to Cain. And then we read in verse 6 of chapter 4, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be what? Lifted up. Is he given a choice here, yes or no? You're given a choice. And sometimes our countenances, countenances, if we veer from the word of God and we start falling into sin, our countenances will fall. We'll become downcast. Like David, after he fell with Bathsheba. Remember what happened? When he repented and came back, he said, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And you might be thinking, well, I haven't done anything like that. I won't do something that bad. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But I'm not talking about on that level, any level. When you sin, you rebel against the Lord, you can all of a sudden, you're not going to experience the joy of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit, until you repent and get right. You might have happenstance happiness for a little while because there's pleasure in sin for a season, but eventually... Let's say you take something that doesn't belong to you. Let's say you hurt somebody in an argument and you say really mean things and you're hoping they're, they're really hurt because of those things and you want them to be hurt even more and what have you, whatever. Those are things that are gonna bring depression upon you eventually because you're resisting the work of God and refusing to come to repentance. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. You're not experiencing the joy of the Lord, the love, peace, joy, and so forth. So it needs to be repentance. Now, he says if you do well... Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Like a lion in the, in the Hebrew, it's like a, a terminology used of a lion crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must what? Master it. Do you believe the Lord God is sincere there? Or do you believe he's pretending that Cain has a choice? You believe he's sincere, Jim? I do too. But if God had predetermined that Cain would take this action and that Cain would continue to rebel against him and made sure to influence Cain's decisions, in fact, Wayne Grudem, when he talks about free uh, choices, he says that God influences the choices that we make. My, my Bible tells me that, let no one say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, for God doesn't tempt anyone. Amen. What would be greater than tempting someone to give him the fall like the devil does? It'd be even worse if you predetermined and made sure he fell, they didn't even give him a choice. Now, the devil would love to do that, but he can't do that. God won't allow him to do that, amen? But don't say God is doing that. God is predetermining that we must sin. No, we have a choice. We have responsibility before the Lord God. Now, Cain obviously takes the other path. I love this, though, because we get to see into God's heart here. We get to see that God is encouraging Cain, Why is your countenance falling, Cain? Let me show you what's wrong. Let me show the root of your problem and why you're depressed right now. Sin's crouching in the door, Cain. If you do well, you'll be accepted, the King James. You'll be accepted if you do what's right. Make the right decisions. To follow me in faith like your brother did. Sin's crouching in the door. It wants you, but you must master it, Cain. Those are words of love. Those are words of grace and encouragement. Now, I do believe, yes, we believe as Christians. If you're going to believe your Bible, before you're a Christian, you are dead in your sins. Okay? We, we are, before we know Jesus, we're dead in our sins. But spiritual death is not always equated to things like, for instance, unconsciousness. Death often is depicted as spe- separation from God. Like in James chapter 2, it says, just as says the, the body without the spirit is dead, separated from the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It speaks of separation. Death is a separation. It's, so when the Lord speaks of spiritual death, he often is speaking of that separation, not as though someone is unconscious spiritually and can't hear his voice. So I think it's important that we understand right from the get-go, uh, the Lord makes these things quite clear. In fact, look at verses 9 through 11. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. In other words, guess what? Cain, you are, you are in trouble. You're responsible. Now, if God predetermined that he couldn't help but make and do what was programmed for him to do, would he be responsible <laughs> If I have a robot and you find out, wow, there's, there's a serial killer in Simi Valley. He's killed 27 people. And then they find out that it's a robot that's been programmed by Joe Schimmel. And the robot had no will of its own, ultimately. And he did what I programmed it to do. Would I be able to blame the robot in court? Would that fly with the jury? No. They would say, what a joke. Who do you think you are? You're the obvious murderer here. So, how could we say that if God's pre programming people to do the very things that they do, he wouldn't be responsible? Burkhoff, who's one of the top Calvinistic theologians out there, he's been dead for years now, but I've read some of his stuff here and there through the years. He has some good things to say, but when it comes to his salvation theology and, and determinism, it's woeful. And he admits, he says Calvinism has not been able to explain this away. He says Calvinism has not not dealt with how God is not the author of sin. If if he's predetermined everything that takes place, yeah, you're right. I'm glad he's an honest Calvinist. R.C. Sproul Jr. Not R.C. Sproul, but R.C. Sproul Jr. He's just made it very clear. He basically states straight out. Well, God's the author of sin? Yeah, he does author sin. He just says it straight out. A lot of Calvinists got upset with him saying that, but at least he's admitting what the theology The implication is. Now keep in mind, many Calvinists will come up, as I mentioned, that fancy word compatibilism. And they'll say, well, God's predetermined what you're going to do, but you actually make the choice. And his predetermination before you even exist and your your choice, and they'll even use terms like free will. You're freely choosing to do it of your own will. But he predetermined it. And, there these, and your free will and what God's re- re- predetermined that you must do, is compa- they're compatible. Do you understand that? Therefore, it's called compatibilism. But when you look at what compatibilism says, it's not really compatible with law. Because guess what? Let's say God wants A to slaughter B, C, and D. And A kills b c and d because god's predetermined before we existed but guess what a and slaughtering b c and d was predetermined to do it and couldn't choose otherwise the calvinist admits that he couldn't choose otherwise if he did those things well then how is he free because god's predetermined that he would follow that each person would do and follow their greatest desire this is jonathan edwards and Calvinists loved Jonathan Edwards because he explored compatibilism. And B, A kills B, C, and D. God's predetermined it. God's in control of everything. He had to do it, but he still freely chose it. Why? How did he free, fr- freely chose it? Because we choose our highest desires. And it was his desire to kill B, C, and D. But then you have to back up and say, where did he get those strongest desires to make those choices? God predetermined that those would be his strongest desires So God could make sure B, C, and D were killed by A. Therefore, was A really free? Yes or no? No, God made sure that he would kill B, C, and D by predetermining it. He had no choice but to kill B, C, and D. But on judgment day, because it was his strongest desire, he can't get out of it because, yeah, I chose to do those things. That was my strongest desire. And let's just, "Wait, wait, wait a second, God, which he can't do, obviously, because their mouth will be shut. Didn't you predetermine that I had to do those things before I existed? I couldn't have chosen otherwise. Well, yes. In Calvinism, given Calvinism, that's not biblical Christianity. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God gives us a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. Amen? So, it's important that we understand. Now, And by the way, it makes a charade out of the Bible because you have God constantly pleading with people, don't do it, you know. Turn, turn, why will you not turn Israel? Which is a joke if he's predetermined that they can't turn and wants them to be doomed anyway and that he's pretending with crocodile tears, you know, over Jerusalem as Jesus is crying, you know. How often I would have gathered your children together as hen does chicks, but you were unwilling. But secretly, I made sure you were unwilling. Just utterly ridiculous. now, Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 11. It's a great passage that is very, very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Uh, we're looking at Moses' parting words to Israel in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, verses 26 through 28. And there's actually more to it, but I'm just condensing what I read because to get some brevity here, in, in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, He says through Moses, uh, see, I'm setting before you. But I want to underline setting before you because he uses this phrase just a few times in all of Scripture in the Old Testament. And it's a set before you, you know, and they have this choice. And then the object uh, of this choice, the the verb that they're able to choose, basically, of of the setting before them, I'm sorry, the, the object is two different choices, you know that they're able to make. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a what? A curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. So he's putting two different ways before them. Now we know... That there is going to be among the Israelites those who choose idolatry, and there's always a remnant who doesn't choose idolatry. Okay, and the remnant that doesn't choose idolatry will not be perfect in keeping his law. Amen. That's why within the Mosaic law, within the old covenant, there were all these animal sacrifices which foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ, because they were all, weren't ultimately going to be saved by the law. But if their faith was in Yahweh, Amen, and the promise of the coming Messiah, the Messiah. Uh, they would have salvation through faith like we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. Various saints in the Old Testament that were saved by faith. But they could choose the way of death or they could choose the way of life. Many chose the way of death and said, nope, I'm not gonna keep God's law. Others chose the way of life and said, I'm gonna seek to follow him. And they fell short, but they had the day of atonement, you know. They had the tamid sacrifices every day in the tabernacle. Then in the temple, they had the Passover lamb and uh, so forth. Now it's interesting uh, we see this, a reiteration of this promise that he set before them in that chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. When you get there, verse 11 through 20, we see this again, but I'm only going to read verses 19 and 20 for the sake of being able to get to other verses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and and 20, I call heaven, and this, basically this is the choose life section. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you. Does that sound familiar? I have what? I have set before you. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Meaning, guess what? I'm calling heaven and earth to witness this. That he's going to set before them What? I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Wow. So what? So what? Choose what? So choose life. That's his encouragement. Make the decision to choose life. You you have blessing and curse before you, life and death before you, two different options. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him, perseverance. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So we have a reiteration of this, which is quite powerful, quite beautiful. Now, I love what Robert Piccarelli says on this verse here, Uh, Free Will Baptist, Theologian, We interviewed him on our uh, podcast, awesome man of God. He says, quote, can we really think God would tantalize them with a choice they could not make? That his command was nothing more than a reminder of what they ought but could not do? No, he's telling them to choose life, to choose the doctrine, uh, or to choose the way of life, quite clear. Now, by the way, I love this because back up. We looked at verses, what, 19 and 20. Back up to verse 15. Verse 15. See, I have set before you what? Today, life and prosperity and death and adversity. Ooh, we just saw that how many times now? Set before you. Three times now. Deuteronomy 11, we saw it once. And now we see it twice in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today, set before you. Life and prosperity and death and adversity. And then a little bit further down, as we had already read uh, in verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death. And earlier than that, in chapter 19, verses 26 through 28, verse 26, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Three different times he sets before them these two options. Fits really well with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, by the way, doesn't it? Give us way of escape. Way of escape is following his word, following his will. By the way, in verse 15, remember you read verse 15? Back up just one verse. Verse 14. But the word is very what? The word is very near you. In your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Ooh, I like that. Guess what? Where Paul quotes that. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 10. You know, in the context in which Paul quotes this, in the context of that God doesn't make a distinction in the new covenant between the Jew and the Greek. He applies this to say that the word's near you is not far from any one of us, that we each have the opportunity to make a choice to choose the Lord, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's really powerful. And I think it's awesome because he quotes this passage where they're called to make a choice whether they're gonna follow the old covenant or not. If they follow the old covenant, it's a schoolmaster that will lead them where? will lead them eventually to Christ. Amen? And ultimate salvation in Jesus. In the new covenant, Paul uses this verse from this passage and applies it to following Christ in the new covenant. I love that. Look at that. Verse 14. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. In other words, it's something that God expects them, desires them, wants them to choose. Now, There's another reiteration of this, again, in Joshua chapter 8, after Moses is gone from the scene, he's died. Joshua is a picture of Christ. Moses represents the law, amen? He can't bring them into the promised land because the law will not get you into the promised land. You will not get into God's kingdom by observing the law through merit, amen? amen? But Joshua, whose name is Yeshua in Hebrew, basically, means God saves. He's a picture of grace. The law comes through Moses, John 1, 17, but grace and truth came through Jesus, amen? Joshua was a type of Jesus, and he leads us into the promised land Jesus does, or Joshua does, same name. And this is reiterated in Joshua chapter eight, verses 30 through 35, which is very fascinating passage, by the way, because in that passage, it's basically, you know, instructions that were given by Moses, reiterated by Joshua, as he basically gathers the people. I don't know if you've ever seen Mount Gezerim, okay, and Mount Ebal. They're two mountainsides, and they converge almost together, and there's an area between the two, that and it goes into a valley. It's beautiful. He puts half the Israelites on Mount Gerizim and half the Israelites on Mount Ebal. What is he doing? Why is God having Joshua do this? To reiterate this, this promise of death and life, prosperity and blessing, of choice. And he says, those on Mount Gazerim, they represent those who obey the word of the Lord and choose life. And those on Mount Ebal, they represent the damned, those who reject God's, God's word and don't choose life. And now it's not like everybody's like, man, I got stuck on Mount Ebal. No, it's just a representation. Hey guys, it's like the sheep and the goats, you know, being on one hand and one on the other. It's a really powerful picture of what Jesus will do eventually but it's a reiteration in Joshua chapter eight of what we've already read in Deuteronomy 11 and in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now through Joshua. Are you with me? It's pretty heavy. Now, go to Joshua chapter 24. Chapter 24. Verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, Joshua states, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. In other words, a lot of the Israelis had started worshiping the Egyptian, the demon gods of Egypt, and God delivered them and set them free. And he's saying to them, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. That's what we all ought to be doing. Amen. Amen. Serve the Lord, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Amen, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. If you grew up and your parents were involved in occultism or involved in some kind of idolatry, or even if you say, "Wow, they weren't spiritual at all, but they don't know God. Well, that means they worship money or they worship pleasure or they worship something else. We make sure we put away those gods, and they don't influence our walks as Christians. Amen. Then make sure that we're putting the Lord first. And he said, and serve the Lord. Verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves, what? Today whom you will serve. Were the God which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the God of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. Now they've escaped Egypt and Pharaoh. Now they're living in in the land of Canaan, and the Amorites are close by. And he says, don't follow their gods either. But as for me, Look at the end of verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. So he tells us to choose this day whom we will serve. Verse 15. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. That is a choice. You have a choice between the one true God and false gods. The Bible is very clear. Now, Keep in mind, I do believe there are two extremes. One extreme is to say, which we've been underscoring, that you don't have a choice. Ultimately, that it's all predetermined. Even though preachers that believe that in their theology sometimes will preach and make it sound as though you do have a choice. And I actually thank God that they do that, you know, because otherwise it would just be really ugly. They're not consistent with their theology, though, but at least they're warning people, you know. Uh, I scratch my head, and I go, hey, no, he doesn't believe that, but, you know, <laughs> when he said, you're, you, you, you could, you know, when he said, you shouldn't do that, you know, well, wait a minute, they can't, but your theology says they can't, but help do that, but at least he's telling them, don't do that, so I'm like, well, praise God, at least he's saying that. Now, it's really clear, so there's one extreme that says, hey, that you have, you know, basically everything's predetermined. The other extreme basically says people just wake up and they're just in a good mood one day and they just start crying out to God and start seeking the Lord on their own. The Bible also doesn't teach that you just come to the Lord on your own natural free will. Jesus said, apart from me, you could do what? Nothing. In John chapter six, verse 44, he says, nobody can come to me unless the Father what? Unless the Father draws him, amen? So the scriptures are very clear that all of us like sheep, Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. So we've all gone the wrong way. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? Amen. There's none righteous, no, not one. So left to ourselves, we would never turn to God. Amen? Amen. But praise God, by his grace, he does not leave us to ourselves. Amen? Amen? He provides what we call in theology prevenient grace. Or pre-regenerating grace, that grace that goes before salvation whereby he draws you. Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw. Did he say he will draw his elect to himself? No. He said he'll draw who? All men to himself. Amen. So we can't come unless he draws us. Because guess what? We are born in sin. Some people try to get around that verse where David says "I was conceived in sin and say, well, really, it was his mom that was a sinner. Maybe she committed adultery. That's not what it's saying. The context of of Psalm chapter 51 is David repenting of his sin. He's not all of a sudden pointing his finger at his mom. You know, that's that blaming on someone else thing again. No, he was conceived in sin. We have a fallen sinful nature when we're born. Now, according to Paul in Romans chapter 7, there's the age of accountability. Kids are not responsible for the rebellion. You don't say, oh, that two-year-old died and now they're burning in hell because of their sin. No, Paul said there was a time, Romans chapter seven, around verse 11, when he said, "I was." he talks about he was breaking, he was doing things wrong, he was sinful, but they weren't wrong in the sense of being held accountable by God because he said the law hadn't come. He didn't know what to covet meant and all these things until the law came. He says that there was a time when I was alive, but then sin slayed me. Not all physically, he didn't get killed physically, spiritually. Because when he became aware of God's law and that he was a transgressor of God's law and still continued to go contrary now, aware of the law, then he died spiritually. Then he needed to be born again. We don't say if someone, their, their three-month-old year baby dies, oh, I hope he chose to be born again first. No, we say they're with the Lord. We know that. We understand that. When David's baby had died, we, resulting from what happened with Bathsheba, he said he knew, he knew he was going to go and be with his baby in the future. They're saying, why aren't you crying and fasting still? He goes, because the baby's gone. And I know I'll be with the baby in the future. It's an age of accountability. So we understand that there's choice to be made. But you have to understand that left to yourself without God's grace of your own free will, you'd be in rebellion to God still. But, but I love the verse we have up there. We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. But right before this, if we had verse 11 and 12 up too, which we couldn't fit it all up there, right? You know, it says, the grace of God that brings salvation is appeared to all men. The Holy Spirit convicts the elect of sin? No, the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Come to me, all of you, not some of you, not the elect, but all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Amen? And I will give you rest for your souls. Amen? My burden is light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He calls us all to himself. He's a gracious God. He's an awesome God. His grace is offered everyone. He's provided himself in his salvation, and Jesus died for all. Many, many scriptures teach that. It says he tasted death for everyone. Even 2 Peter 2.1, it talks about the false prophets. It says there were false prophets among the people. Even shall there be false teachers among you who bring in damnable heresies, it says, and they'll deny the one who bought them. Even John Calvin, his namesake for Calvinism, admits in his commentary that he redeemed those false prophets by his blood. He says that. He admits that. So we have a choice to make. But you don't want to act like, wow, when, I came, when you came to the Lord and you chose Christ... Number one, you having faith is not a work. Be saved by grace. It says by, it's by grace through faith. The Bible says if it's by grace in Rome, it's no longer by works. It's by God's grace that you're saved, amen? But even your, the choice that you made, you would not have made that choice if God didn't draw you. Oh, yeah, he gives you the freedom to resist that. But there's no merit in accepting the free gift. There's no earning it, amen? But you couldn't even receive the free gift if you didn't open your eyes to your sinful state, and your need for salvation. So it's all by grace, amen? Amen. So it's very, very beautiful. But it's not by divine fiat. It's not by decree. We don't believe in salvation by decree. We live in salvation by grace through faith, amen? Amen. We don't believe in salvation by election. We believe in salvation by grace through faith, even though he knows who will respond and who will not respond, and we are elected according to his foreknowledge, it says. More than once it says that, by the way. Now, Go to Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 8. And I think Jeremiah 21, verse 8 is very interesting. Jeremiah, let's go there, chapter 21, verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 21. Isn't this interesting? He's calling the Israelites, and now it's those in Judah, really, the, those in Judah. Israel's already been in the diaspora for almost 150 years at this point, the Assyrians took them out. Now you have the southernmost tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in rebellion. And he says, you've sinned even worse than your sister Israel or the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. You've done even worse. And now he tells them, guess what? The Babylonians are coming in. And they're going to come, and they're, they're already there. You know, they're already doing some damage, right? But they're coming, and guess what? If you fight them and resist them and don't accept your punishment to be in Diaspora and being taken captive, like I've decreed, God decreed that. Wasn't gonna stop his decree. But he gave them a choice though. Within his decree, there was parameters. You can stay and resist them and not accept my punishment. But if you do, you're doomed. You're gonna be, you're gonna fall by one of the plagues I brought, death or whatever. But if you go into Diaspora, into Babylon, he says he'll spare them what would happen to them if they were to stay there. And he says to them later, he says to, you know, plant vineyards and live in houses and the time will eventually be over and I'll bring you back. But look what he says in verse 8. You shall, now this is the Lord God to Jeremiah. You shall also say to this people, thus says the Lord, Yahweh. Look at this, it's awesome. Behold, I what? Are you at one eight? Jeremiah 21.8? What's he say? I set before you the way of life and the way of what? Death. I think it's very fascinating that grammatically speaking, the only constructions in all of the Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament, with this construction where the verb is used to describe two options and the object of the verb is a choice to either have life or death is in Deuteronomy three times where I've already shown it to you and one other time right here in Jeremiah chapter 21 verse 8 it's very clear he's setting before them what? To what? To what? Two different choices. Two different options. You shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Sounds a lot, by the way, like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you, will live. He's talking about the Babylonians. And he will have his own life as booty. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he will burn it with fire. Wow. Does God give different options, life and death? Do we have a choice? Can those who stayed and rebelled against what Jeremiah prophesied there say, I couldn't leave. God predetermined that I had to stay here. Would that match what the Lord says here in Jeremiah chapter 8? No. No. Sin is always our fault. It's in no way ever God's fault. God is good. There's no shadow of turning in him. There's not a speck of evil. The Bible says God is light and him there is no darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. Amen. And this message is not only about your responsibility, but the main way I teach, The reason I teach this way is to show God's holy and righteous and good character. Because I feel it's under attack, not by people who are willingly saying, how can I attack God? Because they adopt theologies that basically attack the righteousness and the goodness of God's nature, but oftentimes they think that's what the Bible teaches because that's what we're taught in seminary. R.C. Sproul, I was reading him today, and he literally says, hey, I believe that you were saved by grace through faith by trusting Jesus, and then when you put your trust in Jesus, you have faith in Jesus? Then you're saved. He goes, but when I was in seminary, which sometimes can be a big mistake. He said, the seminary professor wrote on the chalkboard, regeneration precedes faith. And He goes, that changed my view of everything. Then I came to believe that you're born again before you can have faith. I'm like, yeah, you should have stuck with your Bible, you know. And then he became one of the main purveyors of this view, which sends a real mixed message. So when R.C. Sproul comes to verses that God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of truth, he says it doesn't really say that. It doesn't really mean that. When it says God wills that all would, uh, that it doesn't will that any would perish but that all would come repent. repentance, oh, it doesn't really mean that. And then when he comes to scriptures in Ezekiel where he says turn ye, turn ye, while not, you know, oh, it doesn't really mean that. Other Calvinists like John MacArthur will say it does really mean that. And we praise God. But then he'll say, well, it means that because he wants everyone to be saved, but in his decree, he wants to damn most people before he created us. And they, they're contradictory on their face, but when we're in heaven, we'll, we'll see how it's not a contradiction. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Chosen by God, he says, if you believe that, that is a contradiction. He goes, that's incongruent, that is a contradiction. Let's just philosoph-. He's more philosophical, he says, just admit it. So R.C. Sproul is more consistent with his viewpoint when he goes to scripture, but at the expense of scripture, he twists the scripture. At least John MacArthur is not consistent with his belief on the eternal decree. When he gets to those passages, he doesn't try to explain them away. He just says, he'll say things like, I don't know. Wait till we get to heaven. We'll figure it out. Why there's two different things. There's not two different things though. There's no scripture that says he's decreed that most people go to hell and he doesn't want them to be saved. So they often call it the secret will of God. Yeah, it's a so secret. We can't find it anywhere in the Bible, you know? So, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so that they will live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why, will, why should you die? Well, if they're predetermined, they just say, because you predetermined it. We have no choice. No, that wouldn't be the right answer. That That would be mocking God and His Word. But we have a choice. Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? This is the New Testament. But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth. Sound familiar? This is where he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. But what does it say, the Apostle Paul writes? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Wow. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. See, salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. That is, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it's with the heart that a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, "Whoever whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Wow. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's saying it's for everybody. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, back to the dummy laying in the road. That's an illustration of you have no choice until you're born again, supposedly. What are we to say to that? Well, Lazarus. Is Lazarus a good analogy for salvation when it comes to believing? It Contradicts all those scriptures. If we press, you don't use an illustration of something that contradicts a ton of scripture. However, the dead man at the morgue. Again, not to requote Lorraine Bettner, not to requote R.C. Sproul and all those guys. Quote like four people, but they basically say Lazarus was dead and he can't do anything, and that's an analogous to salvation. We're dead spiritually and we can't even respond because a corpse can't respond. Bad analogy when it comes to salvation. Why? Because listen to Ephesians chapter 2 and how how Paul describes those who are dead spiritually. Tell me if it's the same as a corpse. And you, Paul says, were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were. In which you formerly walked. Wait. Amen. Dead men don't walk. You got it right away, bro. We were, we were walking dead. Now, corpses, you go, go to a cemetery. You don't see corpses walking around. If you do, then the, uh, some zombie movie is being filmed, okay? And you were dead in your trespass and sins in which you formerly walked. Dead men don't walk. Guess what? Spiritually dead people walk. They're different than those who are physically dead. It's not a good analogy, According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is not working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived. Ooh, we lived, they're they're alive too, they're living dead. The Bible talks in uh, in Timothy, it talks about widows who turn away from the Lord and and were formerly on the list to be taken care of by the church. And it says they're dead while they are alive, the living dead. That was around before the movie was around. That's what the Bible refers to, those who are spiritually dead. Among them, we all too formerly lived, physically dead corpses don't live, in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. If you go to a, and you see a bunch of corpses on slabs, are they living according to the lust of their flesh at that point? And the lust of their mind? No, but the spiritually dead do. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest... Because spiritual death is separation from God. It doesn't mean that you have no consciousness, that you don't make any decisions. In fact, Ephesians 2.12, a few verses later, says this. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. It speaks of separation. That's the kind of death excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, who uh, uh, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ you know, the twin epistle that Paul also wrote from the same Roman prison to the Colossians, he wrote some of the same things he wrote to the church at Ephesus. By the way, in between those two verses I quoted, those two passages I quoted, that's where he says in verses 8 and 9, By grace are you saved through what? Regeneration? No. By grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Listen carefully having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised. Spiritual resurrection. That's born again. That's regeneration. Listen to this. Which also you were raised with him through faith. So in other words, when you were raised spiritually from the dead, it was through what? Through what? Come on now. Through faith. The faith preceded the regeneration. Are you with me? You might want to write that down, Colossians, if you're taking notes. Colossians 2.12. have been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. So in other words, when you were spiritually dead in your wrongdoings, he says very clearly, you were raised, regenerated through faith. In other words, the faith was there, and it's through that faith that you were regenerated, born again, raised. Very, very clear throughout Scripture, over and over again. By the way, by the way, in John chapter 5, around verses 28 and 29, you can go there. Let's just go to one more passage. John 5, 28 and 29. He, he says, then the, the, day, the hour is coming. It's coming. It's future. When the dead will hear my voice. Amen? Amen. And they'll, they'll come to life. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Wait a minute. I thought the dead couldn't hear his voice. Ooh. The spiritually dead can. Now, wait a minute. The dead will hear his voice. They'll be raised to life. Those who did good to the resurrection of life, that would be evidence of their faith, not by, because they did good. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation, Jesus says. Interesting. Interesting. Now, how about all the dead that have died? If you go to their graveyards, especially if you go back 2,000 years, right? Do they even have ears anymore? Talk about being decomposed. Their ears are turning into a bunch of atoms and molecules. You never find them. You can't even find their bones. Unless you're wrapped like a mummy, maybe. Well, guess what? Not even having physical ears, they're going to hear. Isn't that a trip? Now, back up a few more verses because that's coming. What about, what does Jesus say right about, about now? Look what he says in John chapter 5, a few verses earlier. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and what? Anybody there? Chapter 5. The hour is coming, and what? Now is. In his day, in his time. At that very moment, he says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will what? Live. Jesus was preaching the word of life. Amen. He's the sower that plants the seed. Amen. In the different soils. Amen. Amen. And there were the dead would hear his voice right then and come to life. Who says dead people can't hear? That's a, uh, that's, not only a contradic- that's not only a bad illustration, but it outright contradicts the very teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when some says to you, well, a corpse can't hear, it can't respond, and, and we're spiritually dead, therefore we can't hear, we can't respond. Just whip out John chapter, you don't go through all the verses I just went through, just whip out John five twenty five. it says right here, He says the, the hour now is when the dead will hear his voice, Amen. And they will respond, you know, and they will live. Wow. So in contrast to what Calvin teaches, Jesus teaches that the dead will hear. That's in faith. And that it will be unto eternal life. By the way, remember Mephibosheth? What a picture of a sinner. We've went through how he's such a picture of a sinner, picture of you and me. He called himself to David. When David invited him, he called himself dead. Why are you doing this for a dead dog like me? Remember the prodigal son? It says he came to a sense, he turned back to his father. He repented. And When his father saw him, he said, my son was what? He was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. Yes, the dead can walk. They can even walk back and turn to the Lord in in repentant faith. The analogy that Jesus uses, which I love, is not Lazarus as an example. And by the way, let me just say this. When Jesus called forth Lazarus to come forth, Lazarus was physically dead, but he said the dead would hear his voice. Amen? Amen. How do we know that Lazarus didn't hear him with his spirit? After all, it's the voice of the Son of God. Amen? And get resurrected at that moment after he heard his voice. We don't know. It doesn't give us enough detail to know. So we don't even know if the analogy can even have a beginning. It might be a better analogy of what we are believing, but we don't need to go by some analogy unless it's given by Jesus, which this one is. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3, 14. Uh, through 16, the most popular verse of the Bible, verse 16. But what precedes it? Listen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes in him will have what? Eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What's he talking about? Remember Moses when they were sitting and rebelling against the Lord's there in first Corinthians chapter 10. I said I wasn't going to get in the context of the whole chapter because we've already done that. What did Moses, they're dying, man. They're all getting bitten by these poisonous snakes. And they're just dying, falling over. Life is ebbing away. Moses put up a brass pole and put a serpent on it. A brass serpent. Put up a pole, I'm sorry, and a brass serpent. So you got a cross, a picture of Christ. And whoever would look at that would what? What would happen? They would live. They would live. Amen. Amen. Jesus says, just as that happened, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. What took place first, the life or the look with the serpent on the pole? The look and then the life. Faith before regeneration. And that is the analogy of what it means to be born again. Because Nicodemus is saying, how can I be born again? Do I have to come out of my mother's womb again? Be facetious. Jesus explains what it means to be born again or regenerated through this analogy. Then doesn't say, consider Lazarus. When he was dead, he couldn't respond until he was born again first. Nicodemus? No. He says, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. They looked and they had life. That's what happens to us. For God so loved the world, Jesus on the cross now, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes, looks to him in faith, shall then what? Have eternal life. Are you with me? And then verse 17, the gracious promise of his provision for all. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, look at this. He condemns them if they don't believe. Jesus says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Wow. In other words, you're condemned if you refuse to believe. But wait a minute. I have to be born again. You have to choose that to happen. You have to elect me and then give me belief and give me faith and then I'll be saved. But You withhold that from me and then damn me because I won't do what I could never do? No, because that's not how it works. He so loved the world, the whole world. The world that he goes on to say rejected him and hates the light, not just the elect, the whole world. That whoever believes in him, that's you, anybody, will have eternal life. If you don't believe, you're condemned because you didn't believe in the son of God that God gave so you could be saved. So you're not only condemned for rejecting him and doing your own thing and breaking all these laws and the books will be opened, but you're also judged because your name is not in the book of life in Revelation twenty eleven through fifteen because you rejected provision that's been made to save you. Are you with me? And by the way, he wants you to believe, even if you don't believe his words and you I don't believe what he's saying. Then he says. Then he says this. But if but I do this work. But if I do this work. Okay, this is John chapter 10, verse 38. But if I do this work, believe in the evidence of the mirac- miraculous works. He says, But if I do this work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done. Even if you don't believe in me, then you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. John 14, 11, A few chapters later, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not believe me, believe because of the miraculous deeds themselves. What's he saying? He's pleading for them to believe. Now, would that be strange if he predestined them where they can't believe and doesn't want them to believe? That he would plead this way for them to believe? Wouldn't make any sense at all. So, by the way, in John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's about salvation. It's about putting your faith in him. It's not an analogy of whether you can believe or not. Because Mary says to him, uh, Martha says, he says, he talks to her about the resurrection. She says, you know, and she said, said to him, he said to her, I am the resurrection of life. He that believes me will never die. And then he says, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, he prays for him to be raised, I should say. And, he, and it says in verse 41, so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But I knew that you always hear, I know that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around I said I said it, meaning I said that in my prayer, so that they may believe that you sent me. Wow. Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. What's going on there? He wants them to believe, but they have to make a choice to believe. He didn't say I said this because I knew you'd make them born again so they could believe. No, he's saying he's doing these miracles so they'll believe. And I've just read different quotations from Jesus where he says, he, if, you don't what, if you don't believe my words, believe my miracles. That sounds like a God that's given them every last-ditch effort to to come to faith or not. Now, he's sovereign. He's provided salvation for them. But they choose hell instead. That's on them. But you can't say that he didn't love them. You can't say that he didn't give his last drop of blood for them. You can't say that he didn't want them to be saved. You can't say that he didn't pray for them. Oh, he only prays for the elect. Oh, really? Read, Read John 11 right there. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 that he made transgression for sinners. On the cross, it says he prayed for these People that rejected him and hated on him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they've done. We have a gracious God, amen? Yes, he prays for the church, but he also prays for the lost world. I love how the book of Revelation ends at the end of the book. We, st- we were in Genesis, early chapters. Genesis, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. That's Holy Spirit. Through the bride, the church. Let him that hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come and drink of the water freely or without cost. Amen. Whoever is thirsty, man, can come. If you don't come to him and drink from the well of salvation, that's on you and you're without excuse. Make sure you choose life. Amen. And may God give us the heart he has for the lost where we cry with the spirit for others to come to him and know him. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your